Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Unmute myself. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, YouTube, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern Sense, put a hyphen there, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, the radio chick, Annie. And Curtis will be joining us a little bit late in the show. Uh, He ended up taking a tumble on Friday night, went down a staircase and ended up on a concrete landing. Uh, So he was having some x-rays done. He's on the way back from the hospital. He's okay, a little bruised, bruised, a little banged up. Uh, But Twinkle Toes will be joining us a little bit later on. Oh, man, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie. And we've got a really lively show, two great guests on. We've got Robert B. Starnes. He was with the Diplomatic Security Service, also a former uh, Texas police officer. Uh, He'll be joining us. He's got a great book out called... uh, Dictators and Diplomats, a Special Agent's Memoir and Musings. And then we have our friend Sam Faddis will be joining us once again. Uh, He's got that new magazine out online called AND, A-N-D, AND Magazine. Uh, He was former CIA, and he helped uh, do the original intel going into Iraq prior to the Iraq invasion. Uh, So we'll be talking with him about anything and everything. The sky is the limit. There is so much to talk about and so much to do. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time. So uh, it's going to be a slam, bang, way outrageous show today. We'll have a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, But I also want to remind you that we start off each and every show with the dedication to a fallen hero. And today's show is dedicated to something a little bit different. It is dedicated to all those who went before us to create, defend, and preserve this republic in honor of our 242nd Independence Day. This is to all of the unsung heroes out there. And I'm reading from an article by Robert B. Charles. And Robert B. Charles uh, was a... um, member of the White House staff under Colin Powell. He served under Reagan and Bush 41 also. He's a former naval intelligence officer and attorney. And he wrote this article that is in IMAC magazine. And IMAC magazine is the Association of Mature American Citizens, the conservative alternative to AARP. And I hope I do Robert's words enough justice. And it reads, Enough 
was all I recall thinking. Politics in the modern 24-hour news cycle, important yet often filled to gills with schlock and grainy drivel, and had thoroughly run me down. I left work and headed home. The route took me past Arlington National Cemetery, always and forever this sacred sobering location of special importance to me and of enormous importance to all Americans tended to slow me down. Today, it did it again. As I rounded Memorial Circle, I made a snap decision. I headed for the cemetery. A depth of wisdom lay within those gates, among those precious stones. You could enter and turn left or right, come to the place from political left or right. Politics were of no matter. You checked them at the door. Here, among these patriotic men and women, quiet, falling, and peacefully resting, resides a truth like nowhere else in the world. It slows the heart, inspires a mind, lifts the spirit, secures the soul, and restores faith. There is something alive here that escapes all words and completes a man. Perhaps that is not entirely true. A similar truth is found in less well-known, no less nobly populated military cemeteries all over the world, where rows of white crosses honor fallen Americans who served with resolve, resilience, and honor. These cemeteries can be found across America and all over Europe, Far East, and points between. In fact, unmarked graves from the Solomon Islands to the deepest sea hold the remains of those whose lives give us pause as often as we spare the drivel to commune with them. You see, these American souls are why we have everything we today enjoy, from free speech and abundant options for worship, affiliation, reading, and writing, to material comforts, public health and safety, fairness in education, employment, and the freedom to raise our families as we wish. Without them and what they rose to do, we would have to be nothing. This is why time among them is arresting. In fact, for me, time stops. It did that day. The day was different from any other. That is why I bring it to you now, to convey the message left by these stones and to let you take it where you will. Buried in this cemetery are my father, paternal grandfather, and grandmother, Maternal grandmother's two brothers, World War II, and great-grandfather, World War I, and great-great-grandfather, Civil War. Their stones are known, and on this day I walked to each. Also here is the memorial to six good friends with whom I served, who all died on September 11th, 2001, where I often sat, but on that day, by the hand of Providence, for an unknown reason, I was not. I visited them too. The walk was long, depth of thinking much like plumbing the black of an old well, but far more positive. I knew whatever these souls now reside, they were, every one of them, proud to have once been American or have been served ideals in this life that we cherish and which, in a manner of speaking, brought them to this very place of rest. You think of many things as you walk among headstones at Arlington or anywhere. 
your own morality, but more often the lives once lived. What made them tick, cry, laugh, love, and risk? You may even wonder, as I did that day, whether those above, memorialized here by name, have any way to see that you are moved by what they did. I went from stone to stone, lingered and tried to discern what the silent voices around me might ask of us living Americans just now. The answer was, in the end, clear. None of us take great risks, suffer loss of time, love, material limb of life, without the hope that somehow this sacrifice will be worth the cost. And if it is life that is lost in this process, the burden of making real the value of that loss falls upon those who are still alive. It is a terrible debt and burden to carry, but entirely real, as transfixing and potentially paralyzing as it is empowering and inspirational. Those who die for love, who wear the uniform of America and risk all for others when they are gone, early or late, they pass the torch forward to us. This is the point. We are actually called upon, whether civilian or military, young or old, not to forget. This is the primary mission. And then to organize our thinking, redouble our personal commitments, refill our hearts, and enliven our minds with the transfer of that nobility to repay that debt as best we can. The modern phrase is to pay it forward, and perhaps that captures it. I'm not sure, as the debt owed is far greater than our poor power, as Lincoln once reminded us to repay. There is something else, too. Actually, two things that struck me hard that day. The first was an elementary epiphany. Every child and grandchild in America, every school child, boy or girl, should be taken on a sunny day to a military cemetery or a cemetery with veterans. They should come with a flag, flowers, or just the disposition to think about what it means to have someone love them so much that they donned our nation's uniform and, in consequence, are here. If every child in America, and perhaps those adults who missed the chance, or who savor the peace as I do, walked to military cemetery once a year, country would be different in some important way. We do not need a federal mandate for this, just a private commitment to do what we can while we can. A secondary epiphany was less expected and more shocking. As I turned out that harried day, gathering wisdom from among these Arlington stones, I wondered again if the souls represented somehow knew I was here. It was an ambling, undirected, unimportant thought but conscious. That was when it happened. As I came to the last family stone, this one belonging to my grandmother's brother who served in World War II, a piercing shaft of light cracked the sky. It lit the very stone, and just that stone for one passing minute. I snapped a photo. Then within minutes, as I left Arlington's vast open cloister, our nation's proud national cemetery, place for remembering debts, the sky came to life. In a massive sunburst, I had never seen anything like this over Arlington, 
nor the guard who turned and looked at it with me. We both marveled. I snapped another photo. The stop, as always, has repaid my time in full, restoring faith, hope, and optimism. We are never lost if we are aware of where we are and how we got here. The question is simply where to go with the the burdens we bear. This was written by Robert B. Charles, a former Assistant Secretary of State to Colin Powell, former Reagan and Bush 41 White House staffer, former Navy intelligence officer and attorney. He writes widely on national security, constitutional law, and international affairs. And I follow that article up with one other item. To remind people where we have come from. This is from constitution.org. And I ask you, do you really know the true price we have paid for our freedom and liberty that our founding fathers have paid? Have you ever wondered what happened to those 56 brave men who signed the Declaration of Independence? And to this, I'll tell you, five signers were captured by British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. But what kind of men were they? Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers and large plantation owners. Men of means, well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept away from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Haywood, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson, Jr., noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over his home for his headquarters. He quietly urged George Washington, General George Washington, to open fire. The home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His field and gristmill were laid to waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. Such were the stories and sacrifices of the American Revolution. These were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ravens. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. Standing tall, 
straight and unwavering, they pledged for the support of this declaration with firm resilience on protection of the divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They gave you and me a free and independent America. The history books never told you a lot about what happens in the Revolutionary War. We didn't fight just the British. We were British subjects at the time. We fought our own government. Some of us take these liberties so much for granted, but we shouldn't. So take a few minutes while enjoying your 4th of July holiday and silently thank these patriots. It's not so much to ask for the price they paid. Remember, freedom is never free. I hope you will show your support by please forwarding this show broadcast link to as many people as you can. It's time we get the word out that Patreon is not a sin and the 4th of July has more to it than beer, picnics, and baseball games. Today's show is dedicated to all these brave men and women who fought and today still fight to preserve this republic. We dedicate it to all those brave men and women and also to all the first responders who every day don their uniforms to protect and serve. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. God bless them all. Because my mind is now Because my 
on Block Talk Radio. SHME is the Lone Star Daily News up in iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just for the next show. Dash in the middle of the type dot com. And we've got our first victim up on the line. Let's welcome aboard former uh, Diplomatic Security Service Officer and author Robert B. Starnes. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you today? Hello, Anne. That's great. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Oh, it is my pleasure. My pleasure. You know, I I have, believe it or not, 66 pages of notes from your book. (laughs) I'm I'm holding it up to the camera because we are also up live on uh, YouTube and Facebook and just showing them that this is 66 pages of notes. So I have no idea where I'm going to start with you. But uh, how come I've never heard of the Diplomatic Security Service? What is that? You know, and I believe that's partly by design. Uh, the Diplomatic Security Service is probably the least known federal law enforcement agency in the country, but uh, consequently it has the most uh, greatest responsibility for overseas law enforcement in the country. Uh, the security apparatus for the Diplomatic Security Service, which is uh, an agency within the U.S. Department of State, actually began in the early 1900s in a small organization that dedicated itself primarily for counterintelligence during World War I. That mission uh, morphed into uh, World War II. And then in the 1970s, the mission changed a bit as it focused on uh, terrorism, as worldwide terrorism began to grow. And uh, in, as our embassies and diplomatic facilities uh, the, were increasingly attacked overseas, after the bombings of the uh, Marine barracks and the U.S. Embassy, both in Beirut, Lebanon, 1983, then President Ronald Reagan, our great communicator, said enough is enough, and he commissioned the Blue Ribbon Panel to study the effects and how to counter terrorism against uh, United States interests abroad. And the Blue Ribbon Panel, which was chaired by uh, real, uh, former Admiral Bobby Inman, who currently lives in Austin, Texas, uh, came up with a series of laws and and regulations that completely revamped the security apparatus for the State Department. And in 1986, the law was enacted called the Omnibus Diplomatic Security Act of 1986, which established the Diplomatic Security Service. And currently there are over 2,000 special agents assigned throughout the world and um, uh, in about 180 posts or so. And uh, just a fantastic organization that does quite a bit of uh, protecting our national security, but likes, uh, I should say, is not really uh, promoted, uh, I think, primarily because of the uh, sensitivities of uh, our uh, 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 foreign relations with other countries. So that's probably why you've really not heard of it. Well, you know, you are a colorful person, and you have a book out called um, Dictators and Diplomats, A Special Agent's Memoir and Musings. And I'm telling you, it is an excellent book. It's so much fun to read. You are a nut, though, I've got to say, because you were a a cop down in Texas. And as a side business, you and your partner were capturing rattlesnakes and selling them to a snake farm. Are you nuts? (laughs) Well, and I've got to say, I, like many other people, were born with an adventure junkie gene. Uh, just uh, 
a risk taker that enjoys uh, exploration and and uh, new adventures. And when I was uh, 20 years old, uh, I graduated from the uh, academy for the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is the state police. I was the second youngest trooper to graduate in the history of the state. Was assigned to a little substation called Rosebud. And there, my partner introduced me to the hobby of rattlesnakering, and we would go in the wintertime in hay bales and barns and snake dens and, um, and, and capture our rattlesnakes. Of course, we didn't make a lot of money back then, so we supplemented that by selling our snakes to, believe it or not, a place in New Braunfels called the Snake Farm, $4 a pound, and uh, I've got to say it was quite an adventure capturing these reptiles. Well, you were talking about uh, also the owners of the snake farm, and they themselves were colorful. Uh, as I understood it from your book, uh, the one of the owners, the husband, his brother was killed because he mishandled one of the snakes? The, uh, the snake farm is uh, really an interesting place. It's open for tourists. Uh, they're just outside of New Braunfels, Texas. And back in the day, I believe it was 1983, when we took our snakes to sell, um, it, it was off season for tourism and uh, the owner gave us a personal tour of course he showed us all the scars from uh, his snake bites while trying to milk the venom and uh, shared with us this tragic story of his brother who also owned a snake farm in Louisiana was bit by a king cobra while milking it and and of course within minutes later had passed but uh, a a colorful interesting place uh, this this snake farm (laughs) you know um I entered the police academy in 86, and actually I was, I think, third or fourth oldest in the academy class. I was not the youngest. I was one of the oldest. So we came from opposite ends of the spectrum there. But, you know, reading the books and the dedication really touched my heart because people don't understand the burden that is on the family of someone like you who serves. And your wife and family put up with a tremendous amount, especially when they were in Guatemala. And you're, you're, you're spot on, and uh, I have the greatest family that any man could ever ask for. Uh, lovely wife, my, my wife is Pam, I met in Rosebud, she's a school teacher. And my four children, Jacob, Zachariah, Rachel, and Caleb. Uh, I, I dragged them through war zones, the Civil War in Guatemala. Uh, we lived during a coup d'etat where the government fell in a violent coup in, in Paraguay. And uh, just, um, they never complained, they had a great time. I know when we were arriving in Guatemala during their civil war, the guerrilla, communist guerrilla insurgents had knocked out the power plant. So our first night at the Hotel Camino Real, which is very close to the spot where the U.S. ambassador was assassinated in 1968, um, we, we had no lights. And my wife, uh, I thought, well, is she going to want to return home? But she's from uh, Texas Pioneer Stock, and she said no. She actually had a candlelight dinner, and uh, the, the thought of Eleanor Roosevelt's comment that it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness was uh, was practiced by my wife then, and and they uh, they actually enjoyed the tour. We um, we had some close encounters while we're sitting in the hotel. The communist guerrillas would uh, ever so often throughout the night throw propaganda bombs. Well. We were sitting watching TV in our uh, first floor hotel room when they threw a grenade in pretty close proximity to our hotel room. So it was quite an experience, a bit of a shakeup, but uh, our family endured that and uh, we, we had really great tours. <laughs> 
with the State Department. Man, there's, there's so much to talk about in the book, and um, I don't know, like I said, I barely even know, because I went back over my notes last night, and as I said, there's 66 pages in here. Uh, you talk about um, also your tour in Paraguay, and there was a tri-border area of, uh, if I can remember if I can get this correctly, uh, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay, which was a center for espionage and crime and smuggling and anything and everything you could possibly think of in that area. And you went and traveled into that area uh, because you were going after a, a terrorist. The tri-border area, a lot of people don't realize, is the largest Middle East terrorist base of operation in the Americas. It's the uh, location where uh, the border of Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil, specifically the city on the Paraguayan side named Ciudad del Este, which means city of the east. There's a tremendous amount of um, Arab community that lives there, and a lot of the money that's gained in terrorist organizations is through the gray and black markets there at the tri-border. And uh, in this area, the, we, the, the tour that I served was 1996 to 1999. We actually uh, captured and disrupted bombing attacks from terrorists who were based and posted there in Ciudad del Este. Uh, the first two weeks after I arrived, the first terrorist crisis that we had was from a terrorist uh, named Marwan al-Safadi. He was a bad, bad dude. He uh, was serving a, tour, a, a prison sentence in Canada where he escaped. I believe he was sentenced for uh, selling cocaine. Uh, and then he um, uh, traveled down to Brazil where he was captured by the Brazilian authorities but had a dramatic prison escape when a helicopter flew into the compound and actually lifted him out of the prison. So he was a fugitive from two different governments, <clears throat> born uh, in, in, in the Beka Valley in Lebanon, <clears throat> very anti-Israeli. So we had picked up intel that he was in the tri-border, that he was in Sudan the last day, and he had comprised his team of terrorists. One, the bomb maker had lost a hand in a bomb-making accident when the bomb blew up, took off his hand. So we had really good intelligence that they were planning to bomb our embassy in Asuncion, where I was assigned, as well as the uh, Israeli embassy in Asuncion. So as, we, um, be, as this situation began to unfold, <clears throat> I really lacked the resources that I needed to be proactive to catch these guys in order to prosecute them in jail if need be. And I will say I, I am so proud of the United States military we had a full bird special forces colonel who assigned to the military attache's office who came to me one day and said, Robert, I realize you're shorthanded. Had a group of elite U.S. Army trainers in country. Uh, we call them snake eaters, uh, just a very fantastic group of guys. And he basically gave me operational supervision of this detachment. And through that, we set up... Um, uh, defensive perimeters, kind of like you would almost uh, the the eighteen movie. I mean, we were constructing uh, lookout points, uh, points that we could uh, respond to in the event of a uh, a last minute attack. And eventually, this terrorist, <clears throat> we um, we were working with the local police to issue search warrants to go up and capture this guy, a Paraguayan, a former retired uh, Paraguayan military colonel, donned his uniform 
obviously corrupt, helped Marwan al-Safadi uh, through checkpoints around the city, and we lost him. And I will say for the next couple of days, there was some very tense moment in the embassies that this main uh, leader, that this, this fugitive from two different countries, this terrorist, was out and about, and we didn't know his location. Well, fortunately, through a good intelligence, we located him. He was hiding out in the colonel's house about five blocks from the embassy in Asuncion. The U.S. Department of State paid the U.S. Department of Defense $25,000 to keep a C-141 aircraft that was there routinely for uh, servicing our military personnel and the commissaries, $25,000 to keep the plane on the ground for an extra day so that we could transport this terrorist out of country. And uh, fortunately, the, the unit that I work with, mostly with the police that we supported and we funded, the counterterrorism unit called FOPE, they uh, surrounded the house, they captured this guy, and the president expelled him from the country into our custody. And the uh, diplomatic security agents um, escorted him onto the aircraft and flew him back to the United States where he was ultimately prosecuted. So a great, great successful story. Well, I want to talk to you about FOPE uh, because that's something I've never heard about also. But there's an interesting story going up to learning about FOPE because you had never heard of it before. Uh, There was an incident with a Peace Corps volunteer on a bus. Four bandits got on the bus, and they didn't know there was a cop on the bus. Tell us about that story because that is so very interesting, and that cop later on became a very good friend of yours. Yeah, the uh, FOPE in Spanish is basically the special operation or special forces here in the U.S. We would probably call them SWAT or the Counterterrorism Response Unit. Um, the, the U.S. Congress uh, um, allows diplomatic security service and, and funds diplomatic security millions of dollars to help train law enforcement entities around the world. And FOPE was the selected entity that we would help train. One day, um, and by the way, back then the Peace Corps had over 400 volunteers. It was the largest Peace Corps uh, contingency in the world uh, there in Paraguay. And um, as part of my jobs as the regional security officer, diplomatic security service, the the chief of the security for the embassy, we would debrief American citizens who were victims of crime. And one day I was uh, asked to sit down on an interview with uh, a Peace Corps volunteer who had this incredible uh, experience. He was on a bus coming back to the capital city of Suncion from his hinterland assignment. And on the bus was a police officer. They got to travel for free if they were in uniform. And he was also going back to his family in Asuncion. When during the trip, uh, four individuals got on the bus and they turned out to be bandits. In fact, one of the bandits recognized one of the passengers as the son of a mayor of a local town and literally shot him in front of all of the passengers in cold blood. At that time, a a gunfire uh, ensued between the police officer who was sitting in the very back of the bus and these four bandits and this police officer. Incredible. uh, You know, Paraguay, like many developing countries, is very poor, so the individuals have to purchase their own ammunition for their service revolvers. Well, he ended up taking out three of the four bandits, and the fourth bandit uh, ran away, but he himself was critically wounded. Well, the police hospital, Paraguayan police hospital, is located right across the street from the embassy. So the deputy chief of mission, myself, and my local investigator went over 
to visit with this hero, this um, this police officer who had been shot up trying to protect the citizens, including our Peace Corps volunteer. As he lay in his bed, he had tubes and IVs all in him, and he he could speak, um, uh, but but his obviously his energy level was, was quite down. And and as we thanked him, uh, he asked me if I could help him get into the um, the FOPE unit, which is again the unit supported by our anti-terrorism assistance uh, training, congressionally training um, uh, funds, and uh, and certainly we we. We uh, helped him as best we could to get on this elite unit that uh, on more than one occasion helped the U.S. Embassy uh, to thwart attacks. So um, quite an individual. Oh, absolutely. Later on, you two worked together as you worked with the the folk day. Do you still get in contact with him? Do you still hear from him? You know, I've lost contact with him. It's been quite some time um, since, since I was in Paraguay. I do stay in contact with my local investigator, who actually is a service national employed at, uh, employed at the embassy. Uh, but uh, FOPE, I, I will say, um, they just we we had a coup in in, in Paraguay. I believe it was uh, 1997. Uh, the way that that the government is set up, um, there was a gentleman, a former general of the Paraguayan military who attempted a coup about two months before I arrived in 1996. And their their Supreme Court had uh, ruled that he was not qualified to run as president. Well, he ran as the president, was selected, but the Supreme Court squashed that, uh, that election, and basically his vice president became president. And the way their constitution is set up, it's really strange. It would be like, uh, let's just say a Republican is the president, but you vice president has to be from the opposite party. And so there was a conflict within the government because the opposition party's leading candidate became the vice president. Well, as uh, the disagreements between the government uh, increased, the vice president was assassinated about, I don't know, a, a few blocks from, from the house that we lived in. And we all knew that uh, if this was not brought under control, civil war would would quickly ensue. Uh, We requested the assistance from FOPE to come and protect the embassy. As things began to spiral, um, protests broke out downtown. Students were shot indiscriminately by corrupt police. Uh, It it was just really a gut-wrenching time. I remember the, the security officer for the president of their Congress came and told me that they had been shot at by snipers, so I provided bullet-resistant vests from my uh, closet to both he and uh, the President of Congress. And as uh, things continue to spin out of control, and this uh, dictator wannabe uh, colonel was really stirring uh, stirring the pot, um, it, it really came down to a point where we picked up intelligence that thugs from the hinterland, thugs from the uh, the farms were planning to march upon the capital city and literally massacre these protesters who were anti-general, who were pro-democracy uh, protesters, mostly students. And um, I, we, we got to the point where we did not do an evacuation of dependents, but we were allowed to double the size of the Marine Security Guard, Guard Detachment. And just for those uh, listeners... 
the regional security officer, DS, is the only position that I'm aware of in the entire government outside of the President of the United States that actually has operational command of active military units. So the Marines operationally answer to a civilian, and, um, and I have to say they did a fantastic job. When uh, we finally got to the point to where we uh, knew that these people were planning to, um, to siege the embassy, uh, it was a hot night. It was a very um, uh, uncomfortable night. And I've got to say the Marines held their positions well. Uh, FOPE, which was, again, the unit that we pumped millions of dollars into training and that were quite loyal to the U.S., were locked down in their barracks by a corrupt chief of police because they did not want to uh, support us. Well, the FOPE commander, when things got really hairy, uh, countermanded that and sent his troops to the embassy to help protect our ambassador and our facility. And uh, as things uh, got to the 12th hour, um, the military was called out and the order was given to massacre the students by the military, but they did not follow that uh, corrupt order. And I've got to say it was a really special time because our ambassador at the time, Maura Horty, she uh, was as tough as now, but as fair, you know, five foot one and just, uh, just a giant. She uh, called me over and she said, Robert, we've got a visitor coming into the embassy. Could you please make sure he gets in safely? So me and the FOPE commander ended up making our way to the uh, to the, to the top of the uh, compound, which is about a 15-acre compound, and we whisked in the president of the Congress, who was in secession to be the next president. An unrehearsed, um, un, uh, no schedules, other individuals from the government started showing up to the embassy. And uh, as fate would have it, the entire government, the next government, was chosen right there inside the embassy working alongside our political officers, our military attache, security uh, forces. And uh, it's, it was just a, a special time that really has never been reported to the way that I share in my book. And it's a dream for the uh, Foreign Service that you would actually be able to participate and assist the government to maintain democracy. And I'll never forget, not many people in that room saw this, but our ambassador, she stood five foot one inch. She stood toe to toe to a very fearful president of Congress and basically grabbed him by the jacket and said, this is your time. This is your destiny. You need to go out there and take control of your country and to protect your people. And she was able to speak courage into him. He left and along with his uh, selected cabinet, went out sworn in uh, as the uh, next president of Paraguay. And this dictator wannabe, the retired general, got on his plane and went into exile to uh, Argentina. So democracy in that country was saved that night. Man, there's so many fascinating, fascinating stories in there. And I had gotten a kick out of the one with, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, uh, William Fornori? William Fortier. Let me just go. Yeah. Especially the bit where he left his phone in the car. I just, it had me cracking up. This guy, he was put in a prison that you called uh, Mayberry RFD, Andy Griffith's prison. And, uh, unbelievable stuff you, you're telling about that's going on around there. And this one, I think, is one of the most amusing stories. It's sad, but amusing at the same time. 
Well, it really was, and and I have to say, um, living in South America, you can still see and feel the Nazi fingerprints. And uh, we were uh, part of our job as a regional security officer is to do criminal investigations. So, amongst uh, my counterterrorism duties, I was received a lead from uh, the U.S. Marshal Service, who had asked to track down an individual that they had warrants on who had absconded from uh, prison there in Austin, Texas. I, um, I I was very doubtful that we would find this guy because all we had was a telephone number that was from a hotel. Well, the Germanic culture there, uh, very good keepers of paper and documentation. The hotel was able to find the original reservation this guy had made many, many years earlier. And the gentleman who had made the reservation for our now South African fugitive, Mr. William Fortier. And um, uh, the police uh, working with their investigators, I, I just I was astounded at how advanced, even in a developing country, that the police department was. Well, the police department had devised a strategy where they went out and captured this person who had made the reservation for a fugitive years earlier, who he himself was a small-time gangster. And they took him to a building. I, I didn't know at the time, but it was a building that um, – uh, Paraguay, uh, their former president many years earlier, um, Alfredo Strassner, he was a dictator for over 35 years. He himself was from uh, Germanic uh, ancestry, and he had hired some Nazis. Um, in particular, he protected um, <clears throat> Joseph Mengele, who was known as the Angel of Death, um, killed a lot of people at some concentration camp and also hired um, an infamous Nazi named Klaus Barbie, who was known as the Butcher of Lyon, killed a lot of people in France, to be uh, you know, his security consultant. And in that, there was this particular building that they used for tortures. I didn't know it at the time. I found out later from uh, a lady who worked at the embassy, a Paraguayan, who told me she could remember the screams coming from this building and then loud music wow. trying to uh, drown out the, uh, the noises. Well, the police had used this very same building for psychological operations to get this, uh, this mobster to, to, to share the uh, location of this fugitive. Well, uh, the instructions I received was to walk in, let them know that I'm American, look at this uh, gangster from head to toe, and then just walk out, not say anything else. And I followed their instructions to the T, and I guess uh, through possible um, concern of CIA involvement, the, uh, the gangster <laughs> started to sing like a little fat canary and uh, told us the location. He was actually staying in the gangster's apartment. And uh, Fope went in, <clears throat> uh, arrested this person, our fugitive, and, uh, and brought him to, uh, to justice. They put him in a prison called Takambu Prison. I understand it's now closed. But Takimbu Prison is a community in a community. <clears throat> in fact, uh, they had a whole wing dedicated to transvestites. They had a hotel for conjugal visits that if you had enough money, you could pay the guards to uh, you know, bring your girlfriend and wife in. It was just a strange place. I had gone up with a missionary once to, uh, to do a, a, a ministry service, and they had let all the prisoners out in a courtyard, whether it was small-time or large-time uh, crime, to have um, picnics, you know, with their family. Well, our fugitive <laughs> escaped from this prison, and we knew how hard he no. was to capture. 
He just walked out the front door. He had bribed a, a guard. So we set up uh, surveillance at the local bus station, and sure enough, uh, the police caught him at the bus station, took him back to Takambu Prison. And then we had got intel that he was trying to bribe a Supreme Court justice's clerk to put his extradition papers, kind of lose them or delay his extradition so he could have another escape. And then he was working with other prisoners to uh, plan um, insurrection or, or a, a, a protest so that he could escape a second time. Finally, he became a liability. The president of uh, Paraguay ordered him expelled without having to go through a formal extradition. And um, and then he, uh, he uh, we had two marshals come down uh, to escort him back. However we were again faced with a dilemma. The dilemma is that at the time there was uh, airline regulations that did not allow you to escort prisoners in excess of 14 hours. And um, the uh, marshals came at the, just the right time because we had another U.S. military air, aircraft in a routine assignment in country. And uh, the Department of Defense, I have to say, are the most can-do people in the world. We had uh, requested permission from DOD to load the marshals and this fugitive, and without hesitation, they said absolutely. So we were able to get the two marshals and the fugitive on the aircraft and send him back to the U.S., where I understand uh, the federal judge um, sentenced him uh, for many, many years for his uh, fraud scheme, uh, in excess, I believe, of over $5 million. Wow. Well, one of your duties with the uh, Diplomatic Security Service was uh, passport fraud, and you came across a lot of that, but you found a unique way in which to get these people sentenced, because normally it would be a little slap on the wrist. Matter of fact, it involved a, me a member of our own Department of Justice, Hollingsworth. And when I read that story, I'm going, I I'm just boiling mad. The things that have gone underneath the Clinton and the Obama administration with this and, and the way that people just walked away with it. But you found a way in which to get a judge to sentence them saying, yes, this is not a victimless crime. There are victims here. Well, you know, that's the strategy uh, basically revolved around what we call an infant death identity. It's where an individual assumes the identity of an infant who had died years earlier. And uh, I, I used the strategy first on the um, uh, another case, uh, but basically what, what we did is <clears throat> uh, some would argue we, we had a high-ranking, in fact, he was the acting director of the Department of Defense's largest office of inspector general, the Defense Intelligence Service, uh, Defense Service Intelligence, um, DCIS, I'm sorry, Defense Criminal Investigative Service. And uh, I don't know if he was going through a midlife crisis. We never proved his motive. But Larry Joe Hollingsworth committed passport fraud. And he was in an office inspector general who is partly internal affairs for the Department of Defense. So we didn't know his motive. You know, there could be billions of dollars at stake. Was his counter an intelligence issue. Um, so we we basically conducted our investigation and arrested 
and prosecuted him. In fact, it's the same judge who is prosecuting one of the current cases, Judge Ellis, there in the Northern District of Virginia. And some might argue because there is the person is not alive, the infant whose identity was assumed, that really there should be a slap on the wrist because they've not offended them. But what we did is um, we reached out to the family and we we um, talked to them and asked them how they felt about dishonoring the name of their, their, their falling family member. And it just so happens in this case there were brothers of the, the child who had died, uh, I believe in North Carolina, a 14-year-old kid riding a bicycle, uh, William Drew. And the, the siblings had, had grown up and became war heroes, members of the U.S. military, and they wrote a scathing letter to the judge how, you know, they, that Larry Joe Hollingsworth had uh, disfamed and dishonored their family name. And I have to say, Judge Ellis gave one of the most creative sentencing that I've ever seen in my 30 years of law enforcement. He required, he sentenced Larry Joe Hollingsworth for 30 days in prison. And he required him to serve those 30 days every weekend, 15 consecutive weekends. So this, this, this former special agent, law enforcement officer, had to check in to jail on a Friday and was released on a Monday, had to do that for 15 consecutive times. So what we learned is even though that the person whose identity was stolen and used um, there still are victims involved, and that is the honor of the family's name, and 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 it worked it worked quite well. Well, the funny thing is, is Hollingsworth, uh, his boss Mancusco, uh, stalled you every place he can, covered for him every place he can. Uh, not only was he convicted of a felony, he was allowed to keep his firearms. He was allowed to retire. Matter of fact, he stayed on the job for an additional six months so he could retire. And then, of course, the taxpayers, three-quarters of a million dollars. This is, this is outrageous. It was, and I am so glad that we have Senator uh, Grassley. He got involved, and he opened up an investigation. And um, Senator Grassley found out so much information to where Donald Mancuso, who later actually was nominated to be the uh, office of the, the inspector general for that uh, DCIS, and he fought that nomination. In fact, he never was nominated based upon Senator Grassley's uh, involvement, and um, it, it was so unfortunate because because a, a apparent friendship between Mancuso and uh, Hollingsworth, he should have been terminated and lost his retirement, but they kept him on the books even as a convicted felon so that he could get his retirement, uh, which, again, is a double standard, which we seem to see nowadays that, that, that there are two standards of justice. But I'm so thankful that uh, Senator Grassley stood up and, and made known uh, all of these, these wrongdoings that, was, that had been done by uh, members of the DCIS. Robert. You know, um, there's so much to discuss in the book, I just want to mention, because you had mentioned that there's a large Arab community in South America. There's also, I want to point out, a large Arab community in the Caribbean, because my mother lives in the Virgin Islands, and on 9-11, she could hear their compounds celebrating. Um, but I found it ironic that when you were later on stationed in Libya, 
the only way you could speak to one of your counterparts was if you spoke Spanish. So, you know, the connection between South America and Central America and the Arab world is rather curious, considering the illegal aliens coming across our southern border. I found it very, very curious. But, Curtis, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Robert, uh, I came to the show a little late today, so you, you guys may have covered this subject, but I'm going to ask it anyway. We all know what went down in Benghazi, but what should have gone down once we um, were alerted that there were um, problems, um, we were being overrun at the embassy, what should have gone down? Well, Curtis, thank you for that question. And and, and let me just preface that uh, uh, what happened in Benghazi uh, that I made the movie about, uh, that happened after I left the organization. However, I was on the first diplomatic team, the first diplomatic envoy to go back into Libya, uh, reestablish relations since our 24-year absence. And um, when I was there in Libya, I did make my way uh, to Benghazi. And Benghazi, I've got to say, it was years before that that, um, assassination of our ambassador. It just had the feeling that you had to be careful where you went, who you spoke with, in fact, um, I had a situation to where I, I love history, and, and I wanted to take a photograph, just for po- posterity's sake, of the old, famous, uh, historic uh, consulate there in Benghazi. And it was getting late at night, so when I took a picture of this building that I thought was the uh, former consulate, the flash cube went off. And it was like hitting a beehive. Many individuals started pouring out of this uh, consulate. And we did have a Libyan intelligence service there for two reasons, watch what we were doing and to protect us. Well, it literally took uh, these intel service officers to step in front of these men who were coming out of the building and come to find out it was the headquarters of the Revolutionary Command Council, which are the fanatics of the fanatics. And we had a situation there, and this was in 2004. Now, fast forwarding to your question about what, should have been done, what could have been done. Um, speaking from just what I've read in the press and you know, speaking with some people that I know, it probably wasn't the wisest decision for our ambassador to travel Benghazi coming up to the anniversary of 9-11. So I would say if you know, there was a do-over, that would certainly be something to, uh, to take a look at. But it just we, we were in a place where we didn't have enough assets to deal with the type of response that happened, uh, the attack. And um, again, it was just a bad decision all the way around to make that trip on the anniversary of 9-11. And so much interesting to talk about in the book. Uh, We've got our next guest, Sam Faddis, up on the line. So, Robert, I don't know if you want to hang out with us uh, as I bring our friend Sam Faddis on. But your book is Dictators and Diplomats, uh, a special Agents, memoir and music, if I can even talk right, <laughs> memoir and music. Matter of fact, there's a link on the show page. So as people are listening in, especially to the podcast later on, they can click on the link, go directly to your website, which is nobilitypress.com, and check out your book and you. So if you want to hang on, you know, you're welcome to stay with us. Well, and thank you. And, and Curtis, thank you both for having me on your show. And, uh, I'd be delighted to come back in the future and share more stories if if if, uh, if desired. Oh, there's so much to talk about, Robert. 
especially I want to talk about your haircut and almost getting your head cut off. But people are going to have to buy the book to read about that episode. <laughs> well, thank you again. It's All an right. honor. All right, thank you very much. That's Robert Starnes. Check out him at nobilitypress.com, and the book is Dictators and Diplomats. Check it out. It, it is a great book. Meanwhile, we've got our other friend. He's the editor and founder of And Magazine, which you can find at andmagazine.org. Welcome back, Sam. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, Sam, it is a crazy world out there, and it's getting nuttier and nuttier. Holy cow, I don't even know where to even start with you. Uh, you know, i got to tell people, though, your background is that you were former CIA. Uh, you were an operations officer. You were also the lead going into Iraq prior to our invasion. Uh, you're a former U.S. armor and a JAG officer as a captain. Um, and you've written two books, Beyond Repair, The Decline and Fall of the CIA, and Willful Neglect, The Dangerous Illusion of Homeland Security. Boy, that last one is a mouthful. There's, there's no homeland security, really, at this point. No, there is not. In fact, actually, one of the things that we've been I've been talking about with some folks is, is sort of doing almost a sequel to Willful Neglect uh, since it's been probably 10 years and take a look at, honestly, things that are probably worse today than they were 10 years ago in Homeland Security. Yeah, it's like we keep on taking one step forward and two back. And right now we've got everyone screaming about the children being separated at the border, and yet not one person is discussing the fact of whether or not that adult going with that child is actually the child's parent or even a relative of that child. Because as we're hearing stories of these kids being snatched up by adults and being taken across the border just so they have a, a reason to come across. Because if we're taking the children and keeping them here, well, then obviously we're going to keep the adult that comes with the child, right? It's a package deal. Yeah. I mean, that's all That's all true, and that's real. That's not fantasy. I mean, I, I also, uh, you know, something that we were talking about in the magazine about a week ago was uh, – Look, before we get to, to all the other stuff, crossing the border without authorization and without authority um, is a crime. In and of itself, that action of entering the nation, our, our country, without legal authority is a criminal action. So even if you're the parent and even if you're not guilty of anything else, which many of them are, you have made an affirmative decision to go out and commit a criminal act and then you decided to bring your kid along when you went out to commit a crime. And you are now complaining after you have been arrested and locked up that your kid is not with you in jail. I mean, that, that's the straightforward, uh, I mean, that is a straightforward delineation of what exactly is happening. You made an affirmative action to penetrate our border defenses, enter our nation illegally, commit a criminal action, you brought your kids with you, and now you're saying your family needs to be kept intact when you are arrested and put in jail. Is there any other crime, any, anybody else who goes out and commits criminal actions and then says, where are my kids? Where's my wife? You're required to keep us here. I mean, there was a simple way to avoid this, right? Don't cross the border without legal authorization. 
then you don't have to worry no. about any of this stuff. My question is, why aren't these adults that are bringing these children over, whether or not they are the parent or not, why are they not being charged with child endangerment? A hundred percent. I mean, think about what you're doing. You're taking a kid, and not only are you going out to commit a crime, but in most cases you're undertaking actions that are very risky. You know, you're hiking across the desert, you're dealing with smugglers, you're crowding into the back of a vehicle, um, and you're bringing them into a country where, by the way, if you're successful in crossing the border, you then intend to continue to commit crimes every day by virtue of lying about your status, hiding from immigration. Yeah. I mean, if we take kids away from parents for much less in this country. In any yeah, event, it, I mean, the true. way I look at it is we did not create that problem. I am not heartless. I'm not oblivious to these kids. But the bottom line is the folks who are bringing them across the border and the folks that are encouraging them to cross the border are the ones who created this situation. Sam. And you notice that it got – Worse, when they started saying, well, we have to find a reason for to let these DACA kids stay. And the moment we said amnesty for DACA, the increase of the children coming to the border just absolutely exponentially multiplied. Uh, go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I was just going to say, Sam, that uh, you were correct in what you were saying about, you know, these people coming here and, and breaking our laws and, and being put in prison or, or detained or whatever, and then wanting their children. You know, the way you articulated it, I think, you know, Trump is good at doing, but he can't do it by itself, you know. Um, our lawgivers and lawmakers, they need to grow a backbone and, and stand up to these allegations by the left. I mean, a lot of this stuff was going on when Obama was president, you know, and we didn't hear, hear a word out of the left. So I think we just need more fighters on our side that when, when these, these guys come up here with, with this, this notion that we are separating kids and, and this and that and the other and they're living in cages, I think our guys on our side should stand up and say, hey, you know, what you're saying is propaganda. It's not really what's happening. These people are breaking the law. We have people here in the United States who are citizens, and when they go to jail, they don't go with their children. You know, some some kind of pushback like that, and yeah. I think that's what we're missing in Washington. Yeah, I agree with you, man. President. If I if I go down the street from my house and 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 stick up the Seven Eleven tomorrow, um, I, and I and I get arrested, I don't expect that when you throw me in jail that you're going to keep my family intact. I understand that I've gone out and committed a crime, and if I brought my kid along, I would expect that he's not going to be sitting with me in jail. And that probably I'm going to have, as we were just talking about, my rights to, um, as a parent, are going to be taken away from me because I have acted irresponsibly. I also, you know, as as uh, you know, the the skeleton in my closet is obviously that I'm, in addition to a lot of other things, a lawyer. Um, and when you go through law school, of course, you suffer permanent brain damage in terms <laughs> of always constantly looking for what is the what's the principle like if you're making an argument articulate to me what is the principle you're applying so that it's not just a different result in every case so on earth there are probably six or i mean 
there are many billions of people, and I think realistically there are probably six or seven billion people living in third world nations who would love all things being equal to have the opportunity to wake up tomorrow morning in the United States. So are the why are the only people that we care about when we're we're bleeding hearts the ones that happen to be geographically advantaged and can walk to our border? I mean, if we're going to open the border and you're going to tell me that anybody who lives in a place that's not as nice as the United States has a right to come here. Shouldn't we be flying people here? I mean, why does the entire Indian subcontinent, you know, a million and a half, a billion and a half people, excuse me, not have a right to walk into the United States just because they're not as close as the Guatemalans? Or how about all of sub-Saharan Africa? There's a whole bunch of people going through hell every day. Why, why, why aren't we worried about those people? Just because they can't make it to our border and we're not taking pictures of them? I mean, what is the principle that applies here? We either have borders and we have laws, or we don't have borders and we don't have laws. We can't just sort of apply based on whether or not you managed to get here. That's silly. Um, I mean, and I do think that a lot of this at this point is just pure propaganda. I mean, it's, I joke with my wife all the time, um, you know, before I, uh, if I frankly don't look at CNN all that often, but if I am going to log on to CNN's website, I can tell you that the eight out of the top 10 stories are going to basically be Trump is bad. And yeah. <laughs> what exactly what exactly the exp- the way in which he is bad will vary every day to some extent but 80% of the of the stories are of their stories they actually focus are predetermined Trump is bad Trump is mean Trump's policies are mean and they just rotate different reasons to say the same thing every day over and over yeah even if it's something good that the man does they will twist it and, and make it a negative. Yeah, look, I, I you know, I mean, yeah. I've been on the program and we've talked about Trump many times, and, and um, uh, there are plenty of things that Donald Trump does that I wish he did differently, starting with messaging and and tweeting. Uh, but I mean, a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times, he's articulate course. he's articulating policies that are just absolutely manifestly good for the country. I mean, I was talking to somebody, a buddy of mine who who's, was a teamster for 30 years earlier today on the phone who writes for Ann Magazine, and we were talking about this. Like, isn't it amazing that you have economic policies for 30 years? They consist of two things largely. One, send our industry abroad as a way to escape from any means – and all the laws that were passed to workplace safety, minimum wage, workers' rights, anything you want to talk about, we're going to move everything out of the country because once we go to Pakistan, Bangladesh, and China, we're free of all that. We will pay slave wages. We won't have to worry about workman's comp. We won't have to worry about disability. And simultaneously, we're going to have open borders to bring in a lot of really cheap labor, especially guys that are off the books and illegal have no bargaining rights, right? You can't friggin' complain about anything. You're going to take whatever the man gives you. In other words, for 30 years, we pursue policies that gut the American worker. 
right? These are aimed straight at what is supposed to be the bedrock of the Democratic Party, was once upon a time, labor, man, you know, working men and women. And yet we pursue these. The party that now claims to be progressive for 30 years has disenfranchised the American worker. And now when there's a guy who finally stands up and says, screw that, we're going to insist on fair trade deals, and we're not letting in unlimited numbers of undocumented workers. Now he's the guy who's branded as being the tyrant, the Nazi, the enemy of the common man. It's, it's like you've gone through the looking glass. The, the whole world is upside down. You know, it's funny because um, we're hearing now people say, well, you have uh, – our economy is doing so well. We don't have enough employees to fill the jobs. So we have to bring people in. Uh, no. Why don't we look at our welfare roles and see who – can go back to work. Let's look at all of our entitlement programs. And I'm not talking about Social Security disability. I'm not talking about that at all because that's money we paid into. We earned it, and it's ours to take it back out, Social Security. That's not an entitlement program. But welfare, Section 8 housing, food stamps, all these entitlement programs. Let's see who can actually physically work and start the welfare to work programs back up again. I'm sure we will have a glut of employees to fill these jobs. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, plus there are all sorts of other things that happen in, in a supply and demand economy, right? When labor starts to get short, in short supply, that means that I now have bargaining power as a worker. It means that instead of you being able to just hand me a minimum wage and I got to take it, now maybe you're going to have to pay me more money, which is a normal part of what happens in an economy. Or you're going to figure out a way to mechanize or automate the job, which, again, is a normal historical thing. right? We've been told for years that you can't have agriculture in the United States without undocumented workers. And yet now there is a revolution in big farms all across the United States with automatic weeding machines, automatic planting machines, automatic fruit picking machines, all this stuff that was impossible without guys that you brought in from Mexico off the books – suddenly is possible. All, all, none of this is new. Right? It has been going on for, for, throughout our entire history. Um, I mean, the only thing that's new is that basically we decided to adopt a policy that, that allows us to bring in pretty close to friggin' slave labor. Why, why did that become an American, an American value? Like, that's a good thing that we're going to have people who have no bargaining power that have to sleep 20 people to an apartment and work for nothing. I don't understand how that became an ideal that we're supposed to be defending. No, I, I don't either. And I, I just love it because whenever you hear these people for the open borders, they say, well, your own Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. And they always leave off the very last line of the poem which says I lift my lamp beside the golden door because even when they built the Statue of Liberty they realized there had to be a pathway there had to be something that would tell us you have we have to be willing to open that door you have to pass whatever smell test it is to get through that door there is a door in the poem because they understood the need of border security when they built the Statue of Liberty. Right. I mean, this is all as we're, you know, this is all common sense, right? We're a nation of immigrants. I agree. And I hope to God we never stop being that because I think it's how we reinvent ourselves continuously. 
I'm all for that. We're also a nation of laws. You got to have laws and rules. Either that or you better get oh, ready to move some people into your house because literally there's about six billion <laughs> more folks behind these guys that are going to come here tomorrow. And we ought to start sending 747s some, you know, flying into to India just to pick people up. When I served there, they did a poll one time and found that 85% of Indians said if they could tomorrow painlessly just somehow magically – emigrate, yes, they would emigrate to the United States tomorrow. That's 85% of the country said they would do that. And out of the top five nations that remit money from the people that are here to that country, India is number four. India yep. is number four in the top five. So A lot of, incre- lot of incredible people, staying. but I don't really think the Americans want a billion Indians to move here or a billion anybody else. I don't care who it is. It had nothing to do with color or culture or anything else. Absolutely. I want to change the subject just a little bit uh, because um, you did a really exclusive interview, which I found fascinating because of all the um, protests that are going on in Iran, in France, for Iranian freedoms and reform. Uh, you did an interview with the grandson of the last prime minister of the Shah. And I know I'm not going to pronounce his name correctly, so I'll let you pronounce it because I don't want to butcher it. Yeah, J.J. Bakhtiari. I'm glad you did it. I couldn't do that. (laughs) And I I found it. I found it uh, very, very fascinating uh, because uh, of the, the amount of social unrest that's going on right now. And Obama had the, the ability with the Arab Spring to do something. But now finally the people of Iran, a whole generation of people that have not known anyone else but the mullahs over there, are finally rising up and saying there's got to be more out there. Yep. I mean, the, there's massive unrest across the country, and I think, you know, the answer is we need to keep the pressure pressure on. I mean, they... The Ayatollahs need to be forced to, to deal with the consequences of their actions, and we need to do, uh, you know, we need to support support this movement. I mean, look, the, I worked Iranian operations for a long time, and I've been involved, involved with Iranian opposition in one way for or another for 30 years at least. And, um, you know, these are incredible people, and Iran is an incredible nation. I mean, it, you know, Persia with a, a history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And it's very, very sad to see this great civilization and these amazing people um, suffering the way they have since 1979. And J.J. And Bakhtiari, who is the grandson of the last prime minister of the Shah, who, by the way, was tracked down and ultimately assassinated in Paris by agents of the Iranian regime after he had fled the country, um, killed with kitchen knives in his own house in Paris, uh, J.J. is uh, one of these guys who's dedicated his life, despite the fact that he has a price in his head, to making change uh, in his home country. And he's at the end of the interview, I was joking with him a little bit about who's going to buy who's going to buy drinks when we get together in a free Tehran. But um, I mean, that's the way he thinks. Is like in the sense that he's not going to be satisfied until he's standing back in a free Iran and the Ayatollahs are gone. Wow. You know, because right now there's a moderate movement with um, 
Mr. Rouhani's moderate government. But he's saying that that's not the answer. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, there, this whole business about somehow there are moderates within this government and all we had to do was encourage them is 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 just a fantasy. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> It's just an excuse to pretend like we don't have to face this monster. I mean, I, I just let's just be intellectually honest. This is a horrifying, brutal, re- oppressive regime um, built on really kind of a crazy, twisted version of Islam, and it's just it, it, it's the country. The country is suffering and has been suffering for decades. So um, if you don't if you don't have the guts to stand up to them and you don't plan on opposing them, then at least say that that's at least call it call it the way it is. I mean, don't pretend like they're somehow kinder and gentler. They haven't changed. My God, look what they're doing in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Yemen. These are the same guys that support, you know, were behind blowing up the Marine barracks behind blowing up any other number of U.S. targets. The same guys who armed, trained and equipped uh, folks in Iraq that killed and wounded thousands of our people. Uh, when my when my son was hit in Afghanistan by a sniper team, the tactics and weapons that team used were all straight out of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, playbook. Fortunately, he lived, but a num- any number of other Marines in Helmand did not live, were killed specifically by weapons handed to them by the Iranians. I mean, that's who we're talking about. Sam. Well, yes. we, got a, a, I know. A, we got a question in, I was going to mention, there's a question in the chat room, Curtis, because Cal is asking what do, what Sam thinks about the White Wednesdays in Iran. I'm not sure I know what that, what is that phrase a reference to? Well, Cal, if you can call in and tell us what the White Wednesday is, uh, Sam will be happy to uh, uh, answer be, the I'll, question. Go ahead. I'd be happy to make up an answer to that question once you tell me what it is. No, uh, I'm teasing. I, I don't. That, that, that reference wearing women's protest wearing the hijab. So, Cal, is that a protest to not wear the hijab? I'm not understanding. I haven't heard of that one before. I'm not familiar with the phrase White Wednesday. Um, There has been a widespread movement inside Iran by women to protest a whole series of restrictions that are placed on their activities and their dress. One of them has been the whole headscarf hijab thing. In fact, there have been any number of women arrested for walking around with the, you know, not wearing any head covering with their with their hair exposed. Um, but also related to that, um, you know, big protests about not because they're not allowed to sit, have, have not historically been allowed into soccer stadiums, theaters. I mean, basically, there are all kinds of restrictions on women that prevent them from living their lives in any kind of normal fashion. Sam. Well, Curtis, go ahead. <laughs> I know um, Obama is no longer in office. But am I the only one to to believe that um, he favored Shiite Muslims over Sunni Muslims? And and I was curious, why is that? And not only that, um, why isn't there an investigation going on about the $150 billion 
he um, snuck over to um, Iran. Yeah, I, no, I don't think you're the. I, I don't think you're the old, the only one. I mean, to, I, I guess the reason I always hesitate when somebody asks me about Obama's foreign policy is that even all these years, years later, I, I kind of still trying to figure out exactly what the hell he thought he thought he was doing. I, <laughs> I, I guess that's to be as honest as I possibly can. I mean, I I'm one of these guys that when Barack Obama I, when he first ran for president, I was a little skeptical of him based on lack of experience. As he proceeded, I really wanted to believe in this guy. I really wanted to get behind him. I, I listened to him and his rhetoric and really thought these are good and and incredibly if they're if this is real, this could be an incredibly positive thing for the United States. And then ultimately, you know, years later just end up being incredibly disappointed and feeling like I was lied to, like the guy pretended to be something that he never was. So that's sort of my emotional evolution that's a backdrop here. I mean, certainly in practice, he ended up favoring the Iranians, who are the champions of Shia Islam, and all of their surrogates, around the Middle East, and he largely walked away from his our historic Sunni Arab allies, like the Saudis, like all the, the Gulfy uh, nations, you know. Um, so in practice, that's that's clearly what he did. And um, I mean, I've, I've worked in the Middle East for many years and have had plenty of differences with representatives of all of these countries. But I just don't have any idea how you can, how you can really rationally, factually support a f- favoring the Iranians. I mean, they they never changed their stripes one bit, and and obviously I don't mean that to say the Iranian people. I'm talking about the regime. I mean, they they are every bit as hostile to us today as they have ever been, and they are amazing, a major danger to peace and stability. And he absolutely supported them. Let them out of the box. I mean, American, Democratic, and Republican administrations following the fall of the Shah in 79 adopted a classic containment policy. Let's try to keep these guys in a box and limit the damage they can do. And it didn't matter whether it was Ronald Reagan or or Bill Clinton. Largely, I mean, there's some variations, but largely that policy remained intact. That's the plan. These are bad actors, and they got to be kept controlled. And then we just tore down that whole thing and just said, hey, come on out and spread chaos. And, man, it'll it'll take us – I mean, here's the real hard part. It's just because we changed presidents doesn't mean they're back in the box. I mean, they have no intention of will, willingly going back. It's going to take a long time to get a handle on this. Well, Sam, we've got Kel up in the uh, the studio here. Kel uh, happens to have her own radio show. She works with Global Patriot Radio as well as Red Fox Radio. Kel, go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Annie and Curtis, uh, thank you for taking my call. And uh, Mr. Faddis, it is, it is an honor and a pleasure uh, to, to speak with you. What you're conveying is so very important. And uh, my question that I brought up in Annie and Curtis's uh, chat room was regarding the woman in Iran and uh, pertaining to uh, White Wednesdays. And this is a movement, of course, to challenge the uh, compulsory uh, wearing of the hijab 
as uh, people are aware, that women in Iran, uh, they are struggling for the right not to engage in head coverings. So every Wednesday, they wear white to uh, further their cause. This has been going on for a very long time now. Now, this campaign, it's addressed to women who willingly wear the veil, but who remain opposed to the idea of imposing it on others. And I think that is is something that we should all understand. Uh, Wearing the hijab should not be compulsory. If you do not want to wear the hijab, then you should be allowed not to wear the hijab. We have had many uh, demonstrations in Iran, and I say we as a collective. I'm in Canada. I'm not in Iran. But uh, there have been many uh, demonstrations in that uh, women want to have the right to dress as they will. And when these uh, demonstrations uh, take place, women are arrested by the authorities. Uh, women are being confined in Evan Prison. And if people are not uh, familiar with Evan Prison, that is a death sentence in itself. Uh, women who oppose wearing the hijab, which is compulsory, of course, in Iran, arrested thrown in Evan prison with dire circumstances in which they are raped and in some cases murdered. Women, you know, who follow uh, the uh, tradition, for example, of wearing uh, the black veils, the shutters, or kneecaps, uh, they should have the freedom to uh, also not do so if they so choose. Yeah, well, look, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and while I was uh, pontificating earlier about the Iranians, I was also simultaneously bringing up on my computer this White Wednesday thing. So I, right on. I, I am now educated on that on that uh, on that phrase and on that on that title that this is part of this broader uh, hijab movement. And I, you know, look, I agree with everything you said. I mean, people have to understand that. In a place like Iran, this is not about having the religious freedom to dress in a certain way. This is about the regime prescribing behavior and and dress. And when you don't abide by their rules on behavior, dress, so forth, uh, the measures that you are taken against you are extreme. Things that most Americans can't even begin. To imagine, as I said earlier, I worked Iranian operations for many years, and I know, uh, which means I worked with a lot of Iranian patriots who were working very hard to for change. And the unfortunate reality of that work was that uh, a significant number of them, over the years, paid with their lives. Um, because uh, the Iranians are no joke, because they are efficient and they are amazingly brutal. And uh, if you know, if they catch you on the wrong side of the regime, death is going to be. Well, you're going to hope that you die, and you're going to hope that you die quickly, with the risk of sounding morbid. I mean, they are. Uh, what they will do to you will be so hideous and so horrifying that I won't even begin to try to describe it. And they will do that to women as well, purely for not dressing the right way or having 
the audacity to say that they want to show up at a soccer stadium and watch a game, or they want to actually be allowed to participate in organized athletics. All kinds of things that Americans take for granted, these folks will torture you to death for. And yet these are the guys that we were told somehow have turned over a new leaf, can now be constructive partners on the world stage. I mean, it's nauseating. When J.J. Bakhtiari, who was the guy that we were talking about earlier in the interview, the night that the Iran deal was signed under the Obama administration, uh, he contacted me because we have known each other for many years. And out of the blue, I didn't, I didn't solicit any response. And he sent me a message, very brief, and it said, this is a stab in the heart to everyone that cares about a free Tehran. That was his one-line summation of the impact of that deal. It was, you just sold us out, you have abandoned us, and you surrendered to the Ayatollahs. That's the way he characterized that. Mr. Fattis, you are uh, just uh, so uh, right on the money there. And um, I have to admit that Iran has been a passion of mine uh, probably since uh, 1984 when I uh, mentored a student uh, from Iran. Uh, He was uh, a victim of the fall of the Shah in 1979, and his family uh, smuggled him out of the country, and he came to Canada, and I was his uh, English a teacher, and I never really understood about the uh, ramifications of what was happening in Iran. And when we look at pictures uh, pre-1979, look at those beautiful women. They're um, in, uh, they're attending their universities, they're mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. attending their jobs, and they're wearing uh, Western clothing. They have beautiful uh, uh, hairstyles, and they're wearing their makeup, and then boom. 1979 came down, and all of a sudden, we're seeing the hijabs and the kneecaps, and uh, it's just really frightening to me in how quickly an Islamic uh, regime can take over that fast. Yeah. Well, look, this is, you know, I said earlier that Iran, Persia, one of the great historic civilizations of the planet, right? We talk about the ancient Greeks, you know, and uh, Thermopylae and, the, the, you know, all the, the great wars and epics, right, when they're talking about making their stand and demonstrating freedom and so forth. Who is it that they're testing themselves against? They're testing themselves against the greatest power on the planet of which they're aware, and that was Persia. That's thousands of years ago. These guys massive cities, civilization, empires stretching across vast portions of the Earth's surface. This is an incredibly old, rich, amazing place. And, my God, now it's under the control of lunatics. Um, I know that, you know, and and true uh, Iranian patriots, men and women, it's just soul-crushing to see what has happened to this place. Absolutely. And, and, and you know what, on that note, I'm going to uh, pass it back to um, Annie and Curtis. I'm a caller here, <laughs> but I just had to call in uh, and uh, impart that information. And Mr. Faddis, you are doing wonderful work. I cannot thank you enough for everything that you are doing. Thank you, sir. Well, thank, thank you. Well, let me turn the show over to Cal every once in a while. <laughs> 
That's cool. She seemed she seemed great, and she also achieved the almost impossible. She taught me something. That's I. That's not easy to do. Well, let me I resist, this way. I I resist learning with, very well. <laughs> when Cal and I get on the telephone together, we're easily on the phone for half an hour talking to each other. <laughs> and she is an extremely, extremely bright young woman, and I admire her a lot. And, and I, I was loving this article that you did, this interview you did with uh, J.J., because it, it pointed out a lot of the stuff that Trump is doing when he withdrew from that that agreement. I, I'm not even going to call it a treaty because it was never ratified right, by the advice right. and consent of the Senate, which made it basically illegal because he did by executive order by bypassing uh, Congress. Um, but he's agreeing that what Trump did back in May withdrawing is was perfect because now the uh, the currency is in free fall, losing 50 percent of its uh, value in the last six months. And he's suggesting that we just make sure that no one circumvents the sanctions. And he points out specifically China, Russia, Turkey, and India, who we always call an ally, but often does not act as an ally. Yeah. I mean, that, that will, that's, that's one of the many tricks here, right? Is um, the money when that, when the sanctions came down, First of all, it took a really long time to get the sanctions in place, and although prior to the deal they were pretty tight, there was still always an issue with countries sneaking around behind our back. But once the sanctions came down, the deal was signed, money flooded in, and a lot of people are making a lot of cash off of dealing with the Iranians. And it's there is no you know i think the expression they always used in the obama administration was well if there's a problem the sanctions can simply snap back into place that's ridiculous there's no such thing as snap back sanctions every one of these nations has a million reasons why they just want to not pay attention to us and keep selling stuff and keep buying stuff and it it's going to be a long road and it, it will take a long time. I mean, it took us decades to get those sanctions together in the first place. It was an unbelievable amount of work. I used to spend a lot of time in the agency, as did many other people, find you know, sneaking around to identify who was lying to us and then selling stuff to the Iranians behind our back and pulling together the information so we could co- go confront the Germans, the French, whoever it was, and then they would lie to us some more, and then we would show them some more evidence, and then maybe they would finally admit what they were doing, and then we would finally shut down that pipeline. And then, of course, two months later, we would discover that they were finding a new way to lie to us and sneak around. So a lot of work. It will take well, a lot of time. Well, do you think in time that Europe will begin to see our side of the story and align with us against Iran? So here's the thing that I think about Europe, and this honestly applies way beyond Iran. It applies to dealing with the Chinese and so forth. Um, We are the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We are the world's largest economy for all of our problems. We have massive influence over other people. What we don't always do is necessarily use that power, just flex some muscles and just say, no, I'm serious. Like, there are going to be real consequences if you don't get your stuff together. 
So I am optimistic that with a guy like Donald Trump in the White House, who obviously doesn't care what people think about him and is more than willing to flex his muscles, that that we will get the Europeans in line. I mean, there are just some basic bottom line type things. I mean, talk about Canada. This has nothing to do with Iran. The Canadians are making all kind of noises about playing tough with us on trade. Are you kidding me? Like something like close to 80% of Canada's exports go one place to the United States. Where are they going to sell their stuff if they get into a trade war with the United States? They're not going to sell their stuff anywhere. What are they going to do? Just sit on it? They have no choice. This is not a – Mr. Trudeau can talk all he wants. He, he, he doesn't, he's not even in the game. You know, he's the 150-pound guy on the, on the field with a bunch of 375-pound dudes. He, he's going to get trampled. The result of this confrontation is preordained if we don't blink. He will get in line because that's the way the world works. So will the Europeans get in line? Yeah, if we're forceful with them. It's just it will still – I mean they'll still, they'll still try to say things in, in the light of day and sign agreements – and then pretend like they don't know there's a French company still selling things to Tehran or there's a German company dealing through somebody in Dubai with Tehran. They'll still do that. But as long as we hold the line, yes, I think we will event, we will get them where we need them. Well, now, my other question is, is that as we pull the rug out from underneath the mullahs in Iran, we're also – dealing with Kim Jong-un in Korea. And we do know there's been an alliance between those two countries, especially dealing with nukes. Right. Do Are we going to be able to keep both of these in play and prevent the advancement of nukes, or are we just whistling up the tree? Can we do it? Yes. Is it easy? No. I mean, I, I you know, I guess it's, it is not an impossible thing. It is not an undoable thing. It is not an easy thing either. It will take a lot of work. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm an old spy, so the term trust means nothing <laughs> to me. I don't understand that concept. People talk to, they ask me all the time when I'm speaking, well, how do you ever know when to trust somebody? And I, I it's another one of those moments when my brain kind of locks up on me. I'm like, because I don't, I don't know what that means. The answer, I guess, is I never trust people when you're running intelligence operations. There's what I know, what I don't know, what I'm – there are gradations in between, but none of that has anything to do with trust. It has to do with what what information I have and what calculations I've made. So I don't trust the North Koreans at all. They'll do what they have to do subject to Chinese influence. So we will have to make them comply. Well but well, we know China is wanting to replace us as the world power, and they're doing it by stealing our technology. Uh, you have companies such as GM and GE that have gone over there, and they have to surrender their intellectual property yep. in order to operate. Uh, yep. it, it, the, the things that the Chinese are doing uh, is to advance their own country and to destroy us any way possible. So, again, you're, you've got now a triangle between North Korea China and uh, Iran. So it makes it for a very interesting playing field. And sometimes you listen to these talking heads and they look at it only one-sided, only looking at Iran solely or only looking at North Korea solely, never putting all the other pieces into play. And then you throw in Iran's relationship with Cuba and Venezuela. It's, it's a 
huge, huge chessboard that is out there, and I don't think half the people that are looking at it even know that they're not even on the board. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great observation. I mean, particularly when, we, when you're talking about things like China and North Korea, and when then we start talking about nuclear programs, we start talking about economic considerations. It it is a game that is you know it's a it's like three dimensional chess, and every move you make is going to have ripple effects and ramifications in a multitude of directions. So, if you want the Chinese to lean on the North Koreans to get them to do something in regard to nuclear weapons, that will inevitably have implications for other points of contact we have with the Chinese. In other words, if we're asking them for concessions on something else at the same time, and they just did something that they regard as beneficial to us in regard to North Korea, it's normal to expect that they're now going to think that, okay, now we're going to give them something. In other words, that they're not simply going to agree to retreat everywhere across the board. Um, well, throw into that so whole thing, this, but, uh, their, but, China's influence, I was going to say, throw into that whole chessboard, China's influence that is growing in various countries in Africa, too. Yeah, sure. The Chinese are wandering all around the planet, Africa, Latin America, with vast sums of money buying influence by virtue of financing projects, and and this has been going on for years. Places where we are increasingly spending very little money on assisting local governments, they're showing up and financing massive projects. So, I mean, the Chinese are pursuing a, a policy across the board, economically, politically, militarily, that is focused on replacing us really as the leading power on the planet. That's a clear that's not that's not ambiguous and that's not I mean they articulate that pretty openly. Just look at their economic policy. Their current economic policy is clearly delineated and articulated and laid out in a whole bunch of different ways as achieving technological dominance over the United States of America, which they regard as the as the ultimately the basis of our power. Why they can't currently defeat us is because technologically we remain vastly superior. So they have a clearly enunciated government-wide policy. Again, no secret. They want to achieve technological dominance over the United States. And as part of that policy, they have been systematically looting all of our intellectual property for years. You talked about how companies go there and have to turn over proprietary information. But they also have just been stealing stuff out of our computers uh, and also, by the way, just putting spies inside companies for decades now. And this is not incidental stuff. This is like literally they get into the mainframes of your company. They acquire the same status as the administrators. In other words, they exist inside your system with full access to everything. And then, you know, the next thing you know, somebody discovers them, but they've been there for a decade. This is not an exaggeration. Like some big company like Cisco discovers, oh, hey, the Chinese government, because this is all funded by the government, has been inside our systems, penetrated them fully, and had complete administrative level access to everything in our entire system worldwide, 
and they've been doing it for about 10 years. So anything Sam. that we know, they know now. Sam, yes. I was just curious uh, what you thought of this. Um, do you think China will ever give up the notion of taking um, under its wings Taiwan again? which used to be Formosa. Not any time time in the foreseeable future. I mean, they certainly, no. I mean, they, no, that doesn't mean that we have to care. (laughs) That sounded very slow. But we do have a treaty. We do have a treaty with them, right? With who? Taiwan. Yeah, no, I meant, I meant, I guess, I, I guess I wasn't, I guess what it means is, okay, that's nice that the Chinese think they should own Taiwan. We don't oh, agree, okay. and neither do the Taiwanese, so I guess that's too bad for Beijing. Um, <laughs> I mean, in other words, I don't think that, that I don't think we ought to even ever begin to go down that road of considering, like Hong Kong was a, a, eventually handed over to mainland China. I don't think we ought to ever go down that road of considering supporting that solution with the Taiwanese. That's too bad for mainland China. That that's just I guess that no. will be a source of irritation for the rest of our lives. But there's no way in hell you know, we can support that. You know, um, I, I find it funny that they have this whole big thing with Trump and collusion with Russia to influence our elections. But I think back to when I used to live in New York and when I left when Hillary Clinton became its senator just before she got sworn in, how much China influenced the elections back then. There was a huge scandal that no one is still talk, is talking about at all, that there's major sections of Chinatown in New York City that suddenly was making massive donations to Hillary's campaign. And yet these were coming from people that barely could afford to send her campaign $10, but you see thousands upon thousands coming out of these households because the money was being sent from China through a, 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 a intermediary. Uh, the guy ended up going to prison for it, but Hillary was never prosecuted for it, uh, for Chinese influence into her campaign to get her elected as senator from the state of New York. So China has been trying to influence us left and right. Needless to say, how many of the... Uh, Different transportation hubs does China have its influence into? How many pieces of property have they been building uh, and owning in the United States? Their influence yep. here is phenomenal. Uh, if anyone were to pull up a map to see what is owned by China in the United States, you would be flabbergasted. But you know that's not individuals owning property. That is individuals, they may be a general in the army or someone's wife, but it's still the Chinese government. It's not privately owned. Yeah, well, that that whole separation, I mean, in many parts of the of, of China, doesn't in many aspects of uh, of Chinese society, government, whatever, that separation doesn't really exist the same way it exists in our society anyway. I mean, there are entire giant Chinese corporations that do business in this country that are fully owned by the Chinese army. That are and and you know the spying that I was talking about is not private. A company stealing another company's secrets. It, it's ch- what amounts to Chinese NSA. I mean, it has a different name, but that's that's what we're talking about. It is a full-fledged effort, and then that information is used for commercial advantage. So you think about. I mean, this this will destroy. This is destroying us economically. This is not an irritant. This is not a. Well, I really wish they didn't do that kind of thing. This is like. A company spends $3 billion and 10 years developing a piece of technology, and then the next thing you know, 
nine months after they put it on the market, the Chinese have got the exact thing on the market at half the price because they skipped all the development work and skipped all the time and the investment because all they did was steal it from you. And then they literally drive the corporation that developed that technology out of business. I mean, that's how, that's exactly, that's not fantasy. That's not a worst case scenario. That's the history of what they've been doing us decade after decade. And you're talking about influence. I mean, the Chinese definitely are buying influence. But explain to me where American corporations are in this. Like, why haven't they been screaming bloody murder? I mean, they, some of them are, but why have they been so, – so many of these have gotten into bed with the Chinese to the point where they don't want to stand up to the Chinese. It's like, it's like okay, well, our factories are going to close in the United States and our workers are going to get screwed, but we're still going to go make a, a money with the Chinese, so it's fine. Oh, it's it's so many fascinating subjects to talk about. I have a, had a list of questions I wanted to go through, uh, and <laughs> I I not even close to being able to touch any of them. Uh, <laughs> I want to make this. this it, it's so much that is going on because uh, you have the, the U.S. ambassador to Estonia in a showboating uh, news event uh, stepped down as ambassador to Estonia, and I'm thinking, you know what. What a nut job. You know, my husband, his family is from Latvia, so we know the importance of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, especially the, the port city of Riga, which is the capital of Latvia, how the right. Russians just would love to have that back. Uh, but right. here he is. It's like, I'm not agreeing with Trump's policy, and, and he's saying he's going to clamp down on uh, countries that belong to NATO. Well, heck, a lot of those con companies, co not companies, countries, are not footing their own bill. We've been putting the majority of the bill, and it's about time the United States says, hey, we're not your piggy bank. Yeah, also, i, I got to tell you that I just don't have any respect whatsoever for somebody who's holding a government position like that and then, as you characterized it, is, doing, is showboating. Okay, you're, you're serve at the discretion of the president as his representative to this nation. You got up to a point where you felt like you couldn't continue to do that job. Right, wrong, indifferent, I agree with you, I don't, whatever. Okay, and resign, and then go home quietly, right? Turn in your papers to the president, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't work on your behalf because I just, there's just too much of a difference of opinion. This is not, you don't, you were there as a representative of the nation. You made a decision to step down. You step down, you walk away. This doesn't become a personal political event. This should not be grandstanding, and this should not be you basically using this this platform to start a fight with the president of the United States, who, after all, is your boss, right? I mean, it's like anybody in Washington, D.C. You don't like Donald Trump, and you can't work for him anymore then go in the Oval Office and hand in your resignation and go home. That's fine. You can do that. You don't fight him from within, and you don't turn this into a PR event. That's nuts. That's garbage. Well, Sam, we're down to our last two minutes of the show. We've had uh -oh. so much fun with you and so much fun with Robert Stearns before. 
and there's so much to talk about and just not enough time to cover everything. But I'm telling people to check out your magazine, which is a great magazine. You just started up recently, And Magazine, A-N-D yep. Magazine, which they can find at andmagazine.org. And you had sent a little message, and I was curious about that. Are you trying to now move this into a brick-and-mortar building or something? Because you said something about building. So it's first of all, it's andmagazine.com. Um Oh, I'm sorry. But I'm sure they would find it otherwise. Uh, no, what we're doing is we're – I think what we're going to do is we are actively expanding, probably going to start adding video content, looking at other uh, other ways to expand this the scope of the magazine. We're about all of 90, pushing 120 days into having End Magazine up and running. We do have a lot of great content, but we really want to expand and we tap into a lot of folks from the Intel, national security, special operations community. And I think as, as good as the articles are, uh, having video content will, will give us a chance to exploit that even more. Fantastic, Sam. I want to thank you for joining. And you know, we're just a phone call away. You can always pick up the phone and say, Anne, come on, I want to come on the show. I got this to talk about. <laughs> All right, well, you I'm going to think number. of something. I'm going to find, research something like White Wednesday and call in sometime. Okay, that's a deal. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. Thanks a lot, Sam. Bye-bye. And enjoy your Take 4th of July holiday. Bye-bye. Nice talking to you guys. Oh, man. All right. Sam, Sam Faddis, check him out at andmagazine.com. I have the correct link on the show page. I just keep on saying the wrong one on my notes here. My bad. Uh, we're going to be back Friday. We've got two great guests that are going to be on together, Trevor Loudon and Valerie Greenfield. Boy, is that going to be a lively show on Friday. So tomorrow is 4th of July, and as I started off the show, reminding you about what July 4th was about, I'm going to leave you with a quote uh, from Theodore Roosevelt, and it reads, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. This is the heart and soul of our founding fathers. This is the heart and soul of our republic. So as I sign off with our closing song, when the roll is called up yonder, I want to wish everyone a healthy and happy 4th of July. But please don't forget where our roots are and where we want our country to go. And so then, Curtis, you and I say good night and God bless.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.